0: Welcome everyone to finance podcast week and this special live stream panel investing for millennials with Andrew Sather from the investing for beginners podcast, millennial boss, Julie Berninger from the fire drill podcast and Claire Wasserman from friends who talk about money. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time finance podcast week is a week of live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive pre-released episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. You can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Podbean, sorry, follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our host of this live stream panel, Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks Norma. Uh, Welcome everybody. We are going to have a fun discussion today for sure. Um, If you have any questions, be sure to type them in the chat and we will answer them as we can. I thought we would start today with talking about, you know, what was it that got us started in investing? What was it that kind of piqued our interest? And so maybe, you know, as we go along this process of talking about our beginnings as investors, we can also talk about the various shows that we've started. Um, and so maybe Julie, maybe you can start first. What was it that got you into investing and how has that kind of moved you towards the podcast you have now?
2: So back in 2013, I was feeling a little overwhelmed by my student loans. I had just graduated college two years before and with my salary at the time, I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to dig myself out of them. So I was Googling one day how to pay off student loans and quit your job or some something like that and I ended up finding a website where someone chronicled exactly how they paid off $100,000 worth of student loans from start to finish. And they did all these silly things like um, all these side hustles and jobs, like cart people around on bicycles and pull them back in carriages, like things that I would never do. But uh, it really inspired me to see this person pay down their debt. So I I tackled mine. And then after I paid my student loans, I was trying to figure out what was next. And from there, I learned about the concept of financial independence. And it was a bunch of people that quit their jobs in their 30s and retired early. And they travel the world and they do all these amazing things. So I really wanted to learn about, about how to do this myself. And I started reading blogs. And I even booked a trip to a conference that was in Ecuador. I'd never been to South America, but I just did it. Um, And my husband now, who was my boyfriend at the time, we went together and we learned about this concept. And from there, we were hooked. We started investing every month. And it's been um, a journey ever since. And I'm just so grateful that I stumbled upon that random Google search back in 2013.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's it's cool to see that evolution. Um, Claire, how about you? What got you started?
3: Sure. Yeah, so I know that I was introduced as the host of uh, John Hancock's podcast, Friends Who Talk About Money, which I am, but I'm also the founder and author of Ladies Get Paid. So let me give you a little background on Ladies Get Paid, uh, since that's what really started me on my not just investing, but on my money journey. And then I can talk about the podcast. Uh, About, oh gosh, 2015, I started to read about the wage gap and the investing gap and the leadership gap and just this realization that men and women are nowhere close to parity when it comes to money and when it comes to our careers, right, and leadership. And I mean, it's systemic, it's overwhelming. So the question became like, as an individual, what could I possibly do to combat something like that? And the only thing I could think of was, let's just start talking about money and what money means to us, right? Because it's so much more than just, you know, the number in our bank account, right? It's, it's our life. It facilitates our life. And I got women together. I hosted an event um, for hundred women. It was a town hall uh, for women to come and talk about money. And what became clear out of it was number one, not only had we not really talked about money with other people, we hadn't really talked about it with ourselves. Uh, We were just sort of going and making the money and not really thinking about maybe long term. We weren't thinking about our values and money. And the second thing that struck me was that there were a lot of questions about negotiation, salary negotiation, and that was a way that we could at least start to close our own gaps. Uh, I know that we're talking about investing, so I'll kind of skip over the whole ladies get paid journey. But long story short, we have uh, 100,000 women now. <clears throat> we're all in a Slack group, which over 2 million messages have been exchanged since 2016. <clears throat> and we teach webinars. So I've effectively eavesdropped <laughs> on all of these conversations. So I've seen really a, um, a change since 2016 in terms of how women uh, look at wealth and that it is not about being greedy, right? So there's a lot of kind of um, reconcile of reconciling of how we've been socialized, and then there's the logisticals of what is, you know, a nifty right? Like define these concepts for me and let me actually start working towards it. Big change happened. So in terms of like my own investing journey and a lot of the investing journeys that are happening in my community, it happened during the pandemic. It happened when we were seeing how the you know economy is going down, but wait, the stock market is going up. So somebody was getting rich. The question was were we? And how could we, you know, be part of this? Um, And especially retail investing, right? Public.com, GameStop, like that really changed the kinds of conversations that were happening in my community. And the last part about the podcast, um, John Hancock approached me, asked me to host it. uh, And the way that it's structured is uh, different kinds of folks, couples, friends come together, they talk about an issue that they're having, financial issue they're having in their life. And then I invite a guest uh, expert on. And investing is certainly part of it, but you know it's all aspects of money and how we can start getting really comfortable just talking about it, because that's, again, always the first step.
1: It, it is a first step and an important step. So it sounds like we have a bit of a range as far as you know the whole spectrum of investing, whether that's having to pay off loans, student loans, like Julie talked about, whether that's increasing your income through salary negotiations and other ways, like Claire's talking about, and really just having a general education on the whole topic and there's a lot that can go with investing and and managing your money and making that grow over time. You know when I started it was somewhat similar to Julie in the sense that I also was Google searching. My problem was, this was back in 2012, I was Google searching and I was just trying to figure out the whole thing because really investing money, personal finance is kind of like a whole new world. and so if you're not lucky to be exposed to it by somebody else, um, it's a bit overwhelming. And so at the time I had Google searched and I couldn't really find anything to walk you through step by step with a lot of the importance of investing in personal finance. I was just having to get bits and pieces here and there. So what I did back in 2012, starting in 2013, is I just kind of documented my journey in a sense of just whenever I would learn something, I would share it on the blog. And then from there, it was able to evolve into a podcast. And now we have listener questions that we answer, you know, whether if we're having a, a guest on, if we're not having a guest on, we field a bunch of listener questions and we just go through those. And it's amazing to hear about, you know, how much there really is to learn about investing in personal finance. I think that's what makes it hard. It also makes it interesting, too. It's it's really the way that me and my co-host Dave Ahern we tr- we like to talk about it is we see it almost like learning a language. You don't learn a language overnight, and it, and nobody becomes fluent overnight. But hopefully, by being exposed to it enough on a regular basis, you can start to learn about you know what what these crazy topics mean. What 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 are the the things that don't matter? The things that do matter, and how can we use that? to better our lives and our finances. And so, you know, that's kind of what we do. Our, our show is called the Investing for Beginners podcast. And um, similar to, to Julie and Claire, I think we have a big passion for just getting that conversation going and, and having people learn about um, the things that they don't know and hopefully getting their questions answered. Uh, you know, hopefully we can do some of that today too. Again, if if you're joining us on the live stream, if you have any question at all that pops up into your mind, um, put it in the chat. we'll We'll try to answer things as we go along. And I thought, you know, maybe we could start um, kind of going along this journey, um, whether that's, you know, increasing the amount of money that you can invest. I think as as a millennial particularly, it can be a little bit difficult if you're if you're first starting out, um, just trying to figure out, even from a career standpoint, what you're going to do. and Um, Coming out, you know, a lot of people come out of college with significant student loans. And I know, Julie, you talked about how that was that was one of the sounds almost like a trigger that got you um, motivated, like a big kick in the butt, like, all right, this thing's looming over me. I better I better um, get to work here. So maybe we can start there from the getting out of debt side, whether that's Julie or Claire, do you have um, practical Tips, or, or maybe even big picture mindsets towards how do you tackle debt, and how can you turn that into, you know, making progress on debt in order to make progress on investing and have more to invest over the long term.
2: I can start with this one. So, at the time, I chose throw everything at my debt approach, which was very intense, and it was a period of about two or three years where I followed the traditional advice, where I cut down on my spending. I went through everything that was in our house that we were renting at the time and I sold it. Um, I literally sold my car actually that I just purchased 15 months ago. I said no to events. I had a friend that was having a bachelorette party and she wanted me to chip in or my, my friends wanted me to chip in, but I, I decided to not stay with them in the hotel and kind of commute, which caused a little bit of friction. Um, You know, how people can be around weddings. So I I made all those decisions. And at the same time, I also increased my income. Because I do think that depending on how much money you make, there's only so much you can do. And you can only move so fast if you aren't earning enough to go at the speed that you want. So I went to a women's networking event. And I was able to negotiate a, a better job through meeting people at a booth. And I ended up moving out of state. So at the time, my husband and I were sort of willing to just do whatever it takes. And for us, that meant we had to go to a state where we can increase our salaries. And then we we chose a less expensive apartment. And we really just sucked away money for a long time. So our, our approach, I would say, it was very fast, um, kind of boring. We were doing all the right things in terms of make trying to make more money, trying to cut back where we can. But then we really started to see that progress over time. And it was actually, we had over six figures of debt between us. And we were able to pay that off um, in just over two years, the entire balance. So it was, it, it was aggressive. And it it hurt, it felt really hard. But at the time, we could do it. And uh, now we're debt free. So the the debt free life is really nice. We make choices based on more what we want to do, I guess. We don't feel like we have to. We don't feel trapped because that was something when I when I was in debt, I felt very trapped. And it also frees us up to invest because I know for me, I, I'd always wanted to invest. I was very interested in it, but it's difficult to invest when you're in debt first. You you can and, and I recommend people look into if they're employed, um, what their benefits their employer has, like 401k, um, investing up to the match is something I definitely recommend even when you are in debt. But uh for us now that we are debt free we're able to put a lot more money towards investing and it's it's paid off over the years
1: do you think having that kind of very aggressive hardcore mentality um really had a big impact on on being able to hit your goals and do you think maybe it's wouldn't have been possible unless you got really that hardcore about it i
2: think it really depends on where you are in your life too because at the time we were 20 somethings without kids and we both were on the same page at the very beginning we were not on the same page and I really don't think it's uh, paying off debt is worth ruining a a relationship over because I know you can definitely uh, have some friction with your partner regarding that if you're really intense and they're not or vice versa. Um, but at that point in our life, we we were able to do so. Now we have a kid and we are not. Um, so if I had to do it over again and just starting from this point, I, I wouldn't take such an aggressive approach. I think you really, it needs to be a nuanced conversation with you, anyone else in your life, and then just taking a look at what can my life handle right now? Um, and if it can, can handle kind of the throwing everything at it approach that we were able to at that time, then then go for it. But otherwise, I think it's okay to allow yourself a slower path and not compare yourself to other people, because at the end of the day, it's, it's getting to the goal. It's not necessarily about how long it takes you to get there. It's not a race.
1: Do you think, so I guess taking to the other person who maybe is not taking it so extreme, do you think there's a way that you, maybe you've observed or have heard from other people where they kind of take this approach to paying off debt and maybe it's not the most ideal way or strategy of doing it and maybe there's there's something or some sort of insight you can give to help uh, maybe do it better?
2: I mean, I I guess I wouldn't necessarily say there's a way that's better, but now that I know a little more about investing and obviously hindsight is 2020, but if you think about the $100,000 that we spent towards debt, which typically has a low and lower interest rate, if you are not having private loans, if we invested that same $100,000 in the market, where would we be today? We would be in a much better position today. But but then again, I'm one of those people that the freedom of having no debt, it feels so good for me. I can't put a price tag on it. So I think everyone sort of needs to look within themselves when they're making decisions. Should I invest? Should I pay off debt? How quickly can I, myself or my family, handle this uh, debt payoff? And what is our trajectory going to look like? Um, even detailing that down to a spreadsheet. I had a spreadsheet when I was paying off debt where I was uh, setting goals every month and putting in the numbers and seeing how we did. So that really kept us on track. But yeah, I think there's no really better way to do it. It's just, you really have to think of who you are and, um, and, and what's going to work in your life because you don't want to burn yourself out and fail the goal. You want to achieve the goal. So how can you do that without burning yourself out?
1: It sounds like a very personal, it has to be thoughtful. Makes a lot of sense. So Claire, um, you mentioned on one of your podcasts, how you guys will talk to people. Do you do you hear similar conversations happening um, with regards to having debt and having that kind of weigh down on being able to invest?
3: Oh, totally. Um, I mean, I'm actually in the midst of getting a certificate in behavioral finance and financial psychology. Um, and just in the way that, you know, growing your money and understanding your money begins with just a willingness to talk about it. Um, behavioral finance, financial psychology means, well, what are my internal roadblocks? You know, when I, quote, know I should be investing, what's stopping me? And yes, part of it could be, and I'm not, I'm not saying it at all as an excuse, but part of it could be I'm too much in debt, right? But the other part could be it's risk. And I'm thinking of this as options trading. So it's also sort of a misunderstanding of what risk is, um, and how to sort of move past your own um, sometimes baggage we've inherited from our family of how we look at risk, right, and how we spend and save. So this is like a deeply complex topic beyond just, again, numbers in the bank account. But yeah, it's true. I mean, it's true. Like, which debt do you pay off first? Um, You know, what am I putting in the savings account or an emergency fund, right, versus putting it into maybe a mutual fund? A great way that I've seen that we've been able to get folks to shift their mind from scary investing, right? I can't do it because I'm in debt. We say to them, well, are you already contrib- contributing to your 401k? And they say, yes. Well, you're an investor. Ah, okay. So now they're able to feel like it's not as risky and that it is important, even as you're paying off your debt, that you're also putting in a high yield savings. You're also putting it in a mutual fund. Maybe you get to play a little bit as a retail investor. Like it's not all or nothing. But it's complex, too. Like, as much as this stuff that we can Google and perhaps seeing, you know, blogs and publications that all kind of have the same framework, it's it has to be filtered through your life and your goals um, and your comfort zone, but also at the same time sort of pushing yourself uh, and trying something new. So, I mean, I guess we all know how complex this is, which is why we're having a whole podcast about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, um, these these kind of big life, life decisions and and making those work for ourselves and trying to figure those things out it i i think i think another big one so we we've we've kind of touched on the debt thing another one another one that's a big life event is you know buying a home and you know for millennials too it seems based on the statistics that um they've been a little slow to buy homes but but it, it does appear to be picking up now If you, if you look at the real estate market And, um, a lot of the industries related to real estate, those are, those are really starting to pick up in the last year. Part of that, you know, might've been the pandemic. Part of that too, is a lot of millennials coming into home buying age and and house household forming age. And so this, this actually works in, um, with, with another part that's, that's, I think a big part of investing, um, but wanting to balance risk at the same time. So this question comes in from Allie. She says, best place for short-term investments, I'm saving for a down payment, and regular savings accounts pay almost no interest. So either Julie or Claire, do you have do you have thoughts on maybe investing the money that you have set aside for a down payment um, until that home purchase finally is made?
3: I'll let Julie respond to that one. if hope you're okay with that.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I am actually in the same boat. I'm currently in the process of trying to buy a house, bid on a house last week and bid up to 110000 over asking and did not get the house. So it is insane out there right now. Um, so I definitely- $110,000?
3: Really- i am sorry to jump in. Excuse me. You Yes. For- yes.
2: Uh, Offered do- to pay that. Yeah. Where are you? Um, I'm in the Pacific Northwest Seattle area now, but this was in the Boston metro area that I'm trying to move to. And it is just insane out there right now. So I I feel you uh, regarding wanting to save for the down payment and uh, understand that in, intimately right now. But for myself, I've always saved in an online savings account like Ally. But you're right, the interest rates, Ally are lower than they used to be. Um, maybe they're, I think, under 1% perhaps right now. Um, for me, now that I'm in this competitive house buying mode, I want easy access to the capital, so I'm not going to lock it up in anything else. But if, if, for example, my husband and I decide, you know what, we're just going to give up for a while and we'll wait a year or two years, then we would typically put that into investments and then just um, decide to maybe sell it off. And and we we typically are index fund investors, although I do dabble in individual stocks. I I really like tech stocks, for example. Um, but you know, when you're, when this is your down payment, you probably don't want to be too, do anything too risky with it. So for, for us, uh, given that we just want fast access to it, I'm okay with the lower returns in Ally for now. I don't know what we're going to do with the cash. Um, so that's why I was curious to see how long, um, oh, okay in Cleveland, Ohio. So hopefully you won't have to go through what I just went through. Um, but I would recommend an online savings account for me. That's, that's the approach that we're planning to use if we decide to just sit out this market for a little bit.
1: I, I'm, I'm in a similar, I have a similar thought process as you do, uh, Julie, because the, the way I always try to say is, is if, if, if you need the money within five years or less, it's not a good idea to put it into the stock market at all. Uh, just knowing about the history of the volatility of the stock market, the fact of the matter is that it doesn't go straight up from the bottom left to the top right, it's it's not a straight line. Even though over the very long term it can look that way, and even even some of the more conservative investments, like um, they have bond ETFs, or even like a treasury treasury bill ETF. You know, the treasury is is kind of known as the most risk-free investment that you can get. But the, even those ETFs are tied to interest rates, and so as interest rates fluctuate, the prices on those shorter term investments, whether you're talking about bonds or government bonds, those will change. And so, you know, I have I have an emergency fund that I have and I had put it into what was supposed to be a very, very conservative, low risk, low volatility ETF that was tied to the short term government bonds. And because we had interest rates start to climb coming out of the pandemic, I saw that money not earn a return. It earns slightly negative returns. And so that's frustrating. Um, just to know that even within a a few months of timing, you could, you could be on the wrong side of the kind of interest rate trend and have that money lose for you. And so at least in a savings account, you're not going to have those price fluctuations. And though, yeah, you're not making much interest on the money. If if you're really, if it's really for a down payment and you're going to move within a year, two years, three years. I think whatever extra 1%, 2% that you make on your money from investing in something that's more aggressive than a savings account, I don't think it's worth the potential risk and the headache if, if you do lose money. And, and I think that's a big thing with investing too, is we're always wanting to optimize. Um, 1% return over an alternative investment is a great return if you're talking about super long time frames, twenty years, thirty years. If we're talking about one to two years, one percent or two percent is not going to really move the needle, and especially if that affects the next home that you're trying to to put an offer in, and 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 you're not wanting to to take the money that you originally put for a down payment because your investments are down, that's that's probably doing a lot of harm to you. And 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 that's why I think, kind of kind of like Julie, um, I think a savings account's probably best for those really short-term investments that you need to stay liquid.
3: For what it's worth, uh, in my community, people are really jazzed about Marcus by Goldman Sachs. If you want to check them out, also SoFi.
1: Those. I'm are, not So being explain paid. explain those. So I, I'm somewhat familiar with uh, Marcus. I know that's like a investing app. T- talk about those real quick.
3: Yeah. I mean, Marcus <clears throat> has savings, investments, loans, tools, and resources. Um, same thing as, as SoFi. Um, it's just, it'll walk you, f- it's just very clear. Um, because so much of this is jargony or intimidating. Um, so in terms of, and I think their, so they're, the interest that they're making is better than a lot of other people that have an APY of 0.5. But yeah, check them out. Just people are excited about them. Just, I think, again, in terms of like, clarity.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a, that's a great idea. Any other, um, I guess while we're on the topic, any other good financial, whether it's an app or broker, uh, personally, I've been using Fidelity and, um, I've, I've enjoyed working with them. Um, have you guys seen anything in particular that you've found really useful?
2: I tried some of the robo advisors. I've tried some of the new fancy fintech stuff, and for me, consistency in investing over time and just locking away that money and not touching it are my priorities. And I even think that a robust portfolio, in my in my opinion, what I try to follow is: I I do investing, I have some cash, I invested in real estate. I'm currently selling a home in Seattle. We're going to be buying somewhere else. So I tend not to follow some of the trends regarding the fintech, uh, like sticking with traditional companies like Vanguard and Fidelity, even if it's harder to access the money or um, contribute, because sometimes I notice some of those companies can be a little bit harder, like like Fidelity. Um, used to require, yet you have to mail something in, or you need to like go online and get forms. Whereas some of these fintech companies, the user experience is just much better. But for me, it's just like locking away that money, so I don't actually spring for that many new apps. Um, I did hear a lot of, of good stuff regarding Marcus. I think my sister might actually use that, so I, I haven't tried it myself. Um, but for me, I mean, I I don't use any of those apps. I stay with the traditional, boring stuff. But seven years later, it works. Um, I haven't touched the money and it's just grown over time and I just keep contributing. And and that's sort of the approach
3: that I follow. And I think that's, I definitely agree. Uh, I think if you want to, if you want to learn more about investing, retail investing, I would definitely recommend you check out public.com. Again, this does not replace long-term investing at all. It's it's essentially a social network where, you know, people are talking about the investments that they're making and why, and they're sharing articles. Uh, you can search for companies based on categories. So if, you know, a company that has diversity and leadership is important to you or if there's like a social impact component to it. Um, so that's just, you know, it's like you want to put your money away long-term. Don't think about it. Don't touch it. But at the same time, if you want to kind of play a little bit uh, and learn, that is, you know, put a little money for that too.
1: So the tool is called public.com?
3: Yeah, yeah, there's I, it's sort of a Robinhood alternative, but with less scary stuff happening on Robinhood.
1: Right. So you can you can set up an account and it and you can trade investments on yes there. and
3: it's uh it's free uh, to start and it's it's slices right so you can put like five dollars ten dollars I mean it's probably not going to go anywhere but <laughs> again just in terms of uh breaking down how intimidating a lot of this can be just and just seeing people talk again that's my whole thing right friends who talk about
1: right yeah I, I guess I, I'm I'm a bit on the boring side I I use the very traditional brokers fidelity I like Merrill Edge because it's linked to my bank of America checking account. So if I log into my B of A, I can see my Merrill edge account balances. So that's cool. But, you know, it's good, good to hear about, you know, these, these newer resources like Marcus or um, public.com where you can get the information in addition to the services of, um, having them steward your money essentially. So I'll, um, Julie, you mentioned you're mostly an indexer. Um, you have been dabbling in some tech. Claire, what what is your kind of brand of investing? What do you prefer to to do with your money?
3: So I'm going to be fully honest. I am not. I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about any kind of finance advice. Uh, I'm really more here as mindset, increasing your salary learning, you know, getting comfortable talking about it. How do you even ask people about how much they make or what their investment strategy is? Um, so I'm really new on this journey. Uh, I opened up a fidelity account a couple months ago. Um, and I'm very much, you know, I think I'm, I know people are here to hear me, but I'm very much here to listen to you guys too. Cool. What,
1: uh, I, I think somebody had mentioned a question in the chat. Um, you have a, a coaching certification. What, what is, um, how does that relate to finance? And I think you mentioned a little bit about how um, a, lot of, a lot of personal finance tends to be behavioral. So maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, so I'm in the midst of getting my certificate uh, in behavioral finance and financial psychology. Uh, By the way, if you guys are, which is a new field, relatively. It started in the 1980s, um, and it was really trying to understand what are our internal obstacles, largely generational, right? And a lot of my work, super interesting, a lot of the work I'm doing for the certificate is interviewing my parents, going through documents that my family saved from my grandparents, great-grandparents. Um, And getting an understanding of their first interactions with money, memories, painful, uh, joyful, right? Uh, And seeing how we really either continue money mindsets or we rebel (laughs) against them and how they morph. And and this sort of explains how you could get rich but still have a scarcity mindset, still very much feel uh, the trauma of perhaps growing up in poverty, right? Um and so most of the people in my class are financial advisors already and they just want to b- better understand maybe their clients uh and you know so again they're not just kind of prescribing best practices right off the bat but really understanding the emotions that their client might be bringing into it so that they know how best to kind of lead them to to a financially healthy place. I think I might be the only person there who's not a financial advisor and who doesn't plan to be. Um, My goal really is to integrate money mindsets into the conversations we're having in our community, the courses that we're teaching. um, I actually just gave a talk at the Wall Street Journal. They had a whole conference around money uh, for women specifically, and I was breaking down the various money scripts that they're called that many of us have. Uh, so that's that's sort of my my perspective, but it's not a certificate to coach. It's I think it's really for financial advisors. And I'm just eavesdropping a little bit.
1: Very cool. This is a good question in the chat, um, somewhat related. So how how have you all seen finance change from your parents' generation, and how millennials are defining the way they invest and interact with money, both directly with investing and in terms of mindset and how we talk about it.
3: Oh, I think I'll, I'll just begin with that really quickly, because um, I've also seen it change since I started Ladies Get Paid in 2016. So it's not just our generation kind of out the womb, you know, it's, it's a total shift. Uh, I think, and I'm 34, so I think even seeing from when we graduated in 2009, what happened in the, you know, job market then and then in the pandemic, it's interesting. Even though we've had so many roadblocks as millennials, I mean, our ability to pay for our lives, given our student debt and how expensive things are, we're at a disadvantage compared to our parents. But I think we are embracing a riskier mindset, to be honest. And that could be because there's, we're watching people get incredibly wealthy. And a lot of these people started with nothing, right? And so it's, it's aspirational. Uh, where with our parents. It, I don't think they were looking at People at the bar, I mean, they did have Twitter, right? So there weren't these like mega fans being created of people like Jamath and Kathy Wood, right? And Elon Musk. Um, and I also think um, there's, uh, so I think there's like a, a, a mindset of this is great. I'm excited about this. I want this money. Uh, I think it actually is possible to get this money, more avenues to participate, right? It doesn't have to just be, you know, behind closed doors in a bank where you learn these things and it's becoming more accessible, so it's super exciting, uh, but also then the the fear, and again, we've seen this with, with Robinhood and, and GameStop a little bit, it's the gambling too. You can lose a lot. Um, so, but I it, overall, I'm seeing people, again, really excited about investing. And again, the thing that I just find so interesting is we've, as millennials, have faced the biggest financial hurdles, more so than any other generation. But yet, we're excited to gamble a little bit.
2: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I think the internet has just been a great equalizer. If we think back to our parents' generation, how did they learn about investing opportunities? Maybe they read a book. Maybe they were lucky enough to have a friend or a family member, which, again, uh, disadvantages some groups that may not have access to people that are doing these things. And now, you know, we can go on Google. We can come on places like these and forums, and we hear a bunch of different opinions and get ideas for ourselves. I know um, also the ability to invest online has significantly increased. Um, For myself, a significant amount of my revenue comes from side hustles, not from my day job. And I have all digital side hustles. I started out doing, like, selling things on Craigslist, as I mentioned, to pay off debt, but that only scales so much. The internet allows you to scale to. Essentially, I mean, billions of people you could do. You could do that. millions, thousands, hundreds, depending on how how much um, money you have to invest in advertising. So I think back to my dad. he actually started a side hustle. He was a DJ, not a cool DJ like now. He was like the chicken dance type DJ. But he, he did that. But you know, now like maybe you could, if you want to take that skill set, you can make some sort of like mixtape thing. I don't know. You could do what what people are doing on TikTok and reach uh, thousands of people that way. So I just think that we have a lot more opportunity. And if you're not taking advantage of the opportunity to make more money outside of your day job or scaling it, and if you have the time to do so, that's definitely something to look into. Because I think we're at a huge advantage compared to our parents' generation with ability to start a business online.
3: But and but, I just want to say, even though mindsets are shifting, there is so much more we need to do structurally systemically to catch up to gender parity here. I mean, almost eighty percent of certified financial planners are male, almost eighty percent, okay so and that's just I mean we're not even talking about mindset stuff here uh or you know comfortability with with risk and how many of us are investing that right that that's just the industry. Uh, so I, you know, that's just sort of my two cents that I wanted to, I wanted to throw in there. I
1: I also get encouraged when I see how the investing landscape has changed. Like I said, uh, I've been, I, I first got exposed in 2012 and, and Julie, like you say, like you're saying, there's, there's so many opportunities for us to make side incomes on, you know, all you have to do is, is have a propensity to be able to work hard and also, you know, be creative with how you can do it. I mean, there was no Uber or there was no driving for Uber or Lyft. Obviously lately that's, that's been more difficult, but so many, so many different ways you can create side, side income and and these side hustles. And now you combine that with the fact that yes, there has been a big gambling mindset with, with some of the options trading stuff that we saw with GameStop. But what was a side effect of all of this is We've seen trading commissions drop to nothing. And now we have also stock you can buy fractional shares of any stock you want. All of these huge barriers that were there even three or four years ago are now completely gone. And so somebody somebody out there could could decide, you know what? I want to invest right now. They could they could um, pick pick any gig app, work a couple hours, take that paycheck, directly put it into the stock market. And that's not an option that was available even three or four years ago. Um, I think, I think even three or four years ago, it was much harder to, to want to make an income. You had to kind of get a part-time job. Now we have, um, Airbnb, right. Or, um, these, these, uh, obviously the the ubers and the lifts of the world you also have services um, there's a website called Fiverr where you can basically put yourself up for hire for for gigs and services whether you have skills in graphic designing whether you have um, skills for editing there there's just it's amazing how the internet has opened up all these pathways to being able to make money and now that investing has become so accessible there's all these apps on there and the the hurdles to get started and, and to actually be a player and have your money in the market, they've never been so low. And it's 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 very inspiring. I think it's very empowering. And the more people talk about it, the more we help others around us, I think it just makes it that much better and, and it spreads that that kind of Game-changing nature of it, it just continues to spread as more people use it and talk about it.
3: And it's not a zero-sum game, right? Like what I can make investing or side hustling doesn't mean there's less for you, which is which is nice too, right? Which um, sometimes people feel like when they negotiate their salaries, there's like less for other folks. Um, speaking of Fiverr, a company that I used to work for, I was the second employee, actually just got bought by, by Fiverr. So another thing to mention is we also have a chance with our equity. I mean, it's not... Chances are that your company is going to get sold is not pretty high there, but we also, you know, our parents weren't necessarily getting equity in the companies that they were working for. So that was a nice little addition to my bank account that happened a few months ago. So thanks for mentioning Fiverr.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I think Julie probably has way more knowledge about that kind of side of the world than I do.
2: Yeah, you definitely... I mean. Side hustles are a great way to increase your income. There is a learning curve for any of these. So I would say don't jump in thinking I can know nothing and make $10,000 a month immediately. You have to work your way up to it. And they kind of all stack on top of each other. But yeah, I mean, it can be a really powerful way. I'm increasing my income six figures in addition to what I make in my day job through online side hustles. Now, now that I have a kid, I have less time. When I was younger, I used to just spend uh, Saturday mornings in a coffee shop just for hours working on this. So that that's sort of how dedicated I was to it to get to the level that I am now. Um, I've seen people get lucky and they don't have to put in as much time ramping up than that I did. But overall, though, it, it's like a skill like anything else. But when you master it, you could really uh, do well. And, and I will say, I think it's a great equalizer because Claire mentioned uh, gender equity things and sometimes as someone that works in tech i can get a little frustrated it can be tough being the only female in the room or um you know maybe be concerned that i might be discriminated against or not but on the internet it's not like that i mean it's a free game no one necessarily really knows my gender in some of these situations so it is cool to to think of it that way it's kind of a little bit more of a freeing place
1: Moving on to you know some of the opportunities we see today, um, I think th- there's a possibility for millennials to be hesitant towards wanting to get into the market. Whether it's because it it seems like the gambling aspect of it is has been particularly enhanced lately, whether it's maybe just a lack of education or maybe you know I I think because I hear from beginners a lot, it seems that the world of investing can just be kind of just overwhelming because there's so many aspects to it. And so whether it's, you know, you turn on CNBC and you hear talks about inflation or stimulus or political this political that, um, or just the fact that the stock market has gone up as much as it has. So maybe going back to you, Julie, um, speak to the millennial who's maybe, in that camp where they're kind of cautious about the market or maybe they're 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 not feeling too positive about it for one reason or the other Um, where do you see the opportunity over the next decade or so and and how can you how do you speak to somebody who maybe feels overwhelmed or feels like they don't know enough or that there's not good opportunities because you mentioned being an indexer um, sometimes dabbling in tech stocks And so I think, I'm assuming you're pretty bullish on the market over the very long term. Um, What do you say to a millennial who's hesitant to get into the stock market?
2: I remember back in, maybe it was December 2013, I had just upped my percentage that I was investing in my 401k, my contribution. And the market dipped and I pu- I think I put in like a thousand bucks and then it it dipped and then I lost a thousand dollars and I was so devastated because I was thinking very short term at the time. And, uh, I was trying to like try to get closer to maxing out my contribution for the year. Cause I'd mentioned that I was very intense about trying to save as much and make as much, um, back in my twenties, but it, it felt awful. So if you're just starting out those little dips, they hurt. Now, that's eight years ago, that $1,000 dip, $2,000 dip, it doesn't even concern me at all um, because I'm not planning. My strategy with this money is I'm not planning on touching it for decades. So I'm I'm willing to ride the little bumps for the payoff long term. And I do follow a lot of people that um, believe in this philosophy. Someone I can think of, Jim Collins, he wrote The Simple Path to Wealth, he's very pro index funds and an in index fund, you don't really need to think about what you're investing in individual 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 stocks because you're putting your money and it's spreading across a whole bunch of stocks. So, and, and you're getting exposure to the broader market. So over decades, people who believe in this philosophy think that the market will go up and that you just kind of save and then don't touch it. And don't worry about the little 1000, $2,000 dips over time. Now, that's one investing philosophy. Over time, my confidence has grown and I'm more interested in picking out individual stocks. And, and just recently, I watched The Bachelor. I'm a big fan of cheesy TV shows like that. But Jason Tartick, for anyone who watches The Bachelor, he started his own personal finance community called Restart. And he's much more into like day trading type things um, and following what's happening in the market every single day. So I've learned a lot because that that personally, I've been very successful without knowing that. And I, and I mention this because I think a lot of people start out and they think, I need to know about options or I need to understand why everyone's investing in GameStop. And I need to understand what happened with the Feds last week. If you are an index investor, you d- probably don't need to know as much um, and you can just trust that over time. If you're interested in in following and knowing all the details, you can do that too. So I guess I just want to mention that there's two options because I thought that you need to know everything to invest, but really you you just need to pick a philosophy.
3: Um, I'll add another book. It's similar to the one that you just said, uh, Boggleheads. <laughs> the Boggleheads Guide to Investing also very, uh, you know, it talks a lot about Vanguard it's long term. The market it goes up and down, uh, but not long term. It just continually goes up. Definitely read that book. I'd also go and check out Gemini and BlockFi. So start, you know, looking at crypto. Um, there's another site to check out, lolly.com, L-O-L-L-I, uh, and it gives you free Bitcoin or cash when you shop. Um, they've got a bunch of stores. Uh, it's you know, so you're getting money. They have a whole deal with the store, right? So when you go on Amazon um, and you pay for something, then all of a sudden you get like free Bitcoin in your account. So just start, you know, even though all of this sounds like, quote, too good to be true, it's not the case, but start doing your own research. I mean, even just nerdwallet.com, easy. It's going to really be, uh, it's going to lay everything out for you and you're going to start feeling more confident.
1: I'm so, I I like to um, kind of be a more hands on type of person. I'm, I'm very much like a stock market stocks numbers kind of guy but you know like like you guys have said the stock market has over the very long term it continues to go up over time there has been crashes there has been times where where the market will have a lot of volatility you get all the different things on CNBC you know a hundred and million reasons for why the market did this or that in any given day Really the what we need to understand about the stock market is it's nothing but the business world When you buy a stock all you're doing is you're claiming ownership of a company and so you know You're not you know You might not be majority owner with with the amount of money you're putting in But you're getting that small slice and that slice becomes more valuable over time So to give an example six six or eight months ago. I bought target I think I think ever most everybody's familiar with that company What's nice about a company like Target is, well, for one, they were one of the few places you could go to over the year, last year. Um, A lot of people went there and a lot of people love going there. And so a company like Target, they don't need to spend much on advertising um, because people already love Target. So as a company themselves, all they really have to do is put their open sign up. They collect the profits from people who shop And then the CEO has the decision of what do I want to do with these profits? And so what they do, um, target in particular, um, because they're already all over the United States, they don't necessarily need to spend a bunch of money to open a bunch of new stores. What they do is they kind of look and they say, well, this store is maybe not doing so well. So maybe we'll close this one. This one looks like it has a lot of potential. We haven't remodeled this one and they'll remodel it. And then from there, um, those profits, they go back into stock buybacks or stock dividends. And so as somebody who is a part owner of target, all of those things make your little slice of target more valuable. And so you have all these other forces, you know, and, uh, all the, all the crazy things that happen with the stock market. But at the end of the day, you're a part owner of these different businesses. And all indexing is, is giving you your little slice of the pie for all of the companies all around you, you know, whether that's Apple or Target or Microsoft or Google or Facebook. These are all companies that we all see, use and enjoy every single day. And when you index, you're basically just getting a huge basket of that. And so, yeah, you know, you might contribute to a 401k and the market might crash next year and you might see a couple thousand dollars disappear temporarily. But the reason why the stock market always comes back over the very long term is because these are valuable businesses and they do, they provide valuable goods and services for all of us. And so if you just have those little slices of the pie, however that looks for you. For me, I like, I like, not like I'm, I'm touching and feeling the things that I own, but I like to be able to visually see it or visually be able to describe why I own a stock. And and if I'm not able to do that within an elevator ride with somebody, I probably shouldn't be owning that stock you know, maybe not like a short elevator ride, not like two floors, but let's say 20 or 30 floors. If I can explain to you why I own Target within that time, then then that's a good reason to own it. I mean, I'm a numbers guy too, but I think the bottom line is, is you need to know why you own these different companies if you're looking at individual stocks. But whether that's through individual stocks like I do, or whether that's looking at indexing over the over A broad scale and having wide diversification that's the bottom line is you're having these little slice of ownerships in all of these businesses and so over the very long term businesses are are there to continue to grow and continue to provide value to consumers and that's what a lot of them do over time and that's why our investments become more valuable over the very long term and that's all that's 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 all we need to know To get us enough confidence to be able to say, if I believe that these businesses can stay around for the very long term, then I believe my investments can also do that. And I I think that helps close that gap and, and take away some of that fear that comes with investing in something as volatile as the stock market.
0: Absolutely, this is Norma Jean here from the Podbean team. So we've just got a couple of more minutes um, before we're gonna jump on to the next live stream. And we do have a giveaway. We have a student enrollment in Julie's ePrintables course where she teaches how to sell printables, printables and digital files on Etsy as a side hustle, which we talked about in this panel. So the first person to comment an emoji has won. So, oh, okay, Allie, you have won. And um, our moderator here is going to type their email address in there in the chat here. And so just send us an email and we'll connect you to Julie for that prize. So you're just gonna email Ronnie G at podbean.com. And I'm gonna read our outro. Thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you everyone for joining us for this special live stream panel investing for millennials with Andrew Sather from the investing for beginners podcast, millennial boss, Julie Berninger from the fire drill podcast, and Claire Wasserman of ladies get paid and friends who talk about money podcast. If you joined us late, or you want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the finance podcast week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We are a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for the session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you again to our amazing panelists today. This has been fantastic. We have an entire day of panels leading up, so we're about to hop on markets market predictions, markets 2021. So that live stream will get started soon. Yes, Germo, we have your email and we are connecting you for your prize tomorrow. We'll see everyone on the next live stream. Thanks again, everyone.